0: Hello, everybody. I'm Kim. I'm in secular recovery. Um, yeah. First, uh, Jeffrey, thank you for the share and thank you for the book. Um, sincerely, thank you for the book. Um, I, as almost everybody in this room right now knows, have never been to a, tra- a traditional AA meeting, and I don't own the big book. Um, I, I'm a year, well, now I'm a little more than a year into this thing. And um, I do have a question for you. Uh, At the near the end of your book you say online communities are okay, but I'd advise against settling for one instead of a real world community interacting online tends to be much less personal and. Uh, I'm not exactly sure when you wrote the book. Um, Actually, there's somebody in this room. I know she's smiling now because I've cured her of that phrase in the real world. (laughs) This is my real world. I have never been to anything but secular, never been to anything but uh, a Zoom meeting. And I have to tell you, I love these people. This connection has been um, right up there with the most important, if not the most important, uh, factors in my recovery, and it brings me joy to come to these meetings. Um, Ireland is my home, even though I'm in Eugene, Oregon, um, and also I uh, I find these same people in uh, at Stonehenge and in Toronto. So, I I you know I'm saving up uh, for real life hugs when I see most of these people. But I tell you what, you get me in a room with strangers. If they reach out and grab my hand, I'm probably gonna punch him in the head or something. And I don't, I don't want to do uh, live meetings. So I'm wondering if your thoughts have changed at all on that.
1: Uh, thanks for the question. Um, it's funny, because when you, I was like, oh, crap, did I write that? <laughs> when you said it just now, I was like, oh, And I remember my thinking behind writing that. It's, it's, my concern is it's very, being in a person of avoidance myself, When the two are equally available, which obviously has changed drastically when the two are equally available, I think it's it's possible and it could be easy for some people to stick with what's easiest. I do think there is value to meeting people face to face, but absolutely, I would never say like if you're exclusively online, you're not experiencing a real recovery community. So I think I think it's I think it's helpful to have that component. I know it was a big part of my recovery, but also, you know, that was that was my situation. I don't know. Is it possible that if I only had online um, meetings and stuff like that, that I would have been even more connected to more people because there were more people available? Maybe I don't know. So yeah, I certainly wouldn't say. I I, I'm going to probably change, alter that for the second edition. (laughs) Um, But yeah, that was definitely written pre-COVID. It was written more when like, you know, there were meetings all over the place. And also I spent a lot of my recovery like in the San Fernando Valley in Los Angeles where there's tons of in-person meetings. And it would almost be more challenging to find an online meeting because there's real, real, real life Face-to-face, I'll say, flesh, flesh, (laughs) real-life face-to-face meetings everywhere. Um, So, yeah, I really, really appreciate you bringing that up. And that is that is something that uh, my thoughts have changed on a bit. And I think, you know, I I think there can be tremendously helpful communities and connections built online. and, And in a lot of ways, it's more convenient, more accessible people are more comfortable. You're in your own house. You can turn off the camera if you if you need to, you know, like go use the restroom. You don't have to worry about like getting up when the meeting's quiet and moving chairs around and interrupting the meeting. It's just a more, it's just a different experience. And so I think it absolutely has a, could be a great choice for people. So yeah, I appreciate you bringing that up.
2: Uh, hi, everybody. I'm Andrea, and I'm an alcoholic. Thank you very much, Jeffrey, for sharing and for your really wonderful book. Um, I, we were talking about it the other day. I love your section on step four. It is um, so much clearer than the big book. It's so much uh, more ideologically. Uh, uh, I have more ideological affection for it than I did for the Judeo-Christian version. Um, I have a a more affinity for the Buddhist perspective, but it is a perspective. Um, So for example, I love the fact that you included sentience. Like there's nowhere in the big book or any of the A literature that says that we should do a harms inventory for sentient beings. You actually used the word, right, Jeffrey. Uh, Jeffrey, So did, did, did that come easily for you, deciding to actually put that question in there about harms we may have done to sentient beings? And moreover, that's one quick question. And you don't mention anything about maybe like my inventory regarding, say, the climate, because there's no sentient being presumably with the climate itself, but it seems to be dying. So... So it might be nice there. And finally, um, I think you also mentioned, I was looking, but I wanted to hear you share. Um, I think you mentioned something about that we should, um, your suggestion to do a harms inventory around historically oppressed groups. Like, you know, where am I racist? Where am I homophobic? Where have I discriminated based on ethnicity, <clears throat> um, uh, gender, things like that. And but remind me did you in fact include those categories in your harms list so thanks again for writing a great book and i really recommend it to newcomers it's wonderful thank you
1: thank you for that um yeah that's a that's a great question and that's a really good i mean so i try to keep it as general as possible because we're looking my hope is that we're looking at all the harms that we've done. And so if I I don't I didn't want to get to I like the idea of listing those sort of as examples. And I certainly uh, I know when I was doing my own harms list, I had considered, you know, ways that I judged people mistreated people based on, you know, um, any identifying characteristic. Um, but I do like the idea of making that more of a really conscious and especially the environment too, even though the environment itself is not Sentient. It's every sentient being relies on it. So harming the environment, therefore, you know, causes harm to sentient beings. So yeah, I, I like the idea of adding more more specificity. I feel like there's always. I, I in fact, I I feel like I now have to <laughs> revisit revisit mine a little bit because I I don't think I had ever really come at it from that from those specific angles and. Yeah, I think that's Actually, yeah, actually that's I think important. I think
2: you do, like not to correct you <laughs> about your own book, but I think you actually do say something in here. I'm sorry I didn't underline it, but I think you do say something about have I judged people on the color of their skin or been prejudiced or something like that. There's a few mm, or okay. women or something. I, I do think you touch on it. And I know for sure you have the line in there about sentience. So so you yeah. do, it, Jeffrey. <laughs>
1: I mean, yeah, I want to include any type of potential harm that we can do to people. And so I wanted to keep it general, but also put a couple guideposts in there. And and yeah, that's definitely, I I like that. I'm going to, I'm writing that down and I'm going to, I think uh, I want to be more explicit about that uh, in future editions. So thank you. That That was great. I don't know if I answered your question there. I just really, honestly, I just really appreciate that, that take on it
3: hey i'm jonah i'm an alcoholic um thank you jeffrey it was really great to hear your story um you know you, you said you don't you don't cons- you you know you don't think you're special and don't you know uh, think your experience or or you know perspective is it's any more valuable than anyone else's. So I just want to assure you that I don't think you're special. I don't put you on a pedestal, and I may be the only person here who actually hasn't read your book, although it's been recommended to me many times, and I've actually recommended it, Sight Unseen, to people, um, to newcomers who are, you know, struggling and, and want to do some some secular step work. Um, I, I just wanted to say, you know, in in the you know in the vein of you know sharing in response to a to a qualification or a lead share um, that I really identified with a lot of your story, you know, that the boredom, the end just being like self-loathing and boredom and disgust with the way I was behaving. I was also a solitary drunk and, and a pot smoker and, um, you know, sitting at home, getting high and getting drunk and passing out and rinse and repeat. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean my my bottom was also internal. And you know, I like that you talked about that because you know, there's there's a I, I feel like there's kind of a a, a stereotype or just sort of an assumption in you know, in the program that like you have to hit rock bottom. And I really hate the concept of rock bottom because like I why are we telling people they have to destroy their lives before they can get sober? You know, it just kind of baffles me. So like, I was like, no, I could like I knew it could have gotten worse and I knew what worse looked like cuz I'd seen it in my family. Um, you know, I'd seen it in my mother. So I wasn't, you know, I, I was able I was able to kind of build the floor um under under myself at that point. Things were pretty bad, but you know, I wasn't in jail, I wasn't in the hospital. Um but I like the way you talked about avoidance. Um, that's been a big, big part of my uh, sort of, you know, addictive kind of, you know, personality disorder. Um, you know, it's there's a lot of avoidant behavior that I, you know, that I learned from, you know, my alcoholic parent. Um, and, you know, it's a big part of what I struggle with in therapy and in you know, the, the work that I do in my sobriety. Um, so, uh, yeah, I just, you know, just wanted to thank you for sharing and, um, you know, it's good to be here. It's good to see you all. I have to, I actually have to run to another thing, but, um, it was great to, uh, great to, you know, see your face and, and I love you all.
1: Um, so yeah, I, I, I I know that phrase too. I've used it myself. What other people think of us is none of our business. Um, but I still find myself like a little kid like well, why? Why is it any of our business? Why should I just ignore it? You know, doesn't it mean something? Doesn't it isn't, isn't there isn't there some some aspect of reality that's being reflected back in these people and and so I think what was what was more helpful for me was to really just realize uh, and think about how much people's own perceptions and experiences and biases play into the way they perceive you um, and just how little it has to do with any objective measure of you and how much of it has to do with their own experience and their the people that they've been raised by and the people they've had in their life and their values and so you know i i i if you've ever read the four agreements it's it's a really good book but he talks in there about not taking anything personally and i i like that kind of approach and he but he goes into it by talking about just how you know other people's perception of you is just built entirely on their own Experiences and worldview and perceptions and everything, and really none of it is a, is objectively you. And you're also a different person to different people and in different situations, and depending on your mood and depend. So, what one person thinks about you at one point is not by any means a reflection of who you are all mm-hmm. the time, or yeah, and it depends on their mood. Depends on their mood when you do the thing that they judge you I mean, it's so fickle, right? So somebody's somebody's perception of you and idea of you is so fickle. And so that's that was helpful to me. Having said that, I still I think there's a place like if somebody has. An experience of me, I think it's important for me to hear them out and to say, oh, you when I said this, you took it this way or you heard this. Okay, I will take that into consideration. So I think it's important to to listen to people and to take feedback but to also not take it as like this gospel that this is this is uh uh, indicative of something that something factual about me this is this is something i have to take as as truth about who i am so i hope that i hope that makes some sense but it's it's a nuanced thing like everything right like it's not we just don't care what anyone thinks about us ever That's the kind of black and white thinking that I can fall into easily sort of with my addict type thinking. it's all or nothing. It's 100% or 0%. And the truth is, it's like it's very, very nuanced. So just to briefly, briefly touch on that. Um, Yeah, the um, finding my own voice, huge. I never knew how to speak up for myself at all like when i was a kid i was they wanted to hold me back in like kindergarten because i never talked extremely shy never knew how to like state a preference i would rather do this it was all what everyone else wanted to do i was just so timid and so and so that's been a big part for me is finding a voice and being able to speak assertively i feel like assertive communication is one of the key things but i also realize that i'm I'm lucky being a white male when I'm assertive, it's like, oh, look at this assertive. Hey, he's he's confident. Whereas, you know, I I have a lot of respect for women and minorities and other people who, you know, when they're assertive, it's seen as more of a negative thing. Um, So I realize how difficult it is for for different people. And I just I think I think it's still so, so important. But, um, yeah, thank you for bringing that up.
4: All right. I'll go ahead. Yeah. My name is Jeb and I'm a, a very grateful recovered alcoholic addict. And it's good to meet you virtually, uh, Jeffrey, uh, I certainly hear an awful lot, read a lot of your book at various means. It's gotten very popular and congratulations there that you've written a book that, uh, people are finding helpful, um, uh, one of the things that, well, I, I love the fact that you referred to relationships uh, and also self-reflection especially. Uh, for me, the self-reflection thing is, is the continuing use of the process outline of step four. And I don't mean simply looking at um, resentments, fears, and sex relations. For me, the most important part of the fourth step is a sane and sound ideal for all of my future relationships, not just the romantic and sexual. Because when I took, first was introduced to the fourth step, I recognized that I treated everybody the same way. And, and the root of my problem was my selfishness, self-centeredness, and it was all about me, which was a sign of my my um, my immaturity, my, my infantile um Self-centeredness, egocentricity. Um, I take seriously a lot of the things that I read and that I've heard. The uh, most important for, for me, perhaps, is what Bill wrote in the in the twelfth step. Uh, Though he, you know, when he was working, when he wrote about working with others, but he didn't really talk about practicing these principles, these steps in all of our affairs, but he corrected that in the 12 and 12, where he said at the 12th step, we begin to practice these all 12 steps on a daily basis so that we and those around us can find emotional sobriety. So it, that's why it's so important for me to have that picture of the kind of person I want to be. I'm reminded of a song and in, in a movie in the I, know, I think it was probably in the 40s I never saw the movie, but it says, you know, it says accentuate the accentuate the positive, eliminate the negative and don't mess with mystery in between And I think that's the sort of thing where the four step process, where I outline and continue to outline my most glaring and but common human weaknesses and defenses, is very important. But then also in the fourth step, my strengths that have been there all the time that would show themselves, and I try to build on that today. And that became to be a part of the kind of person that I want to look at in the mirror at the end of the day and say, How'd you do? And uh, you know, I, I, fortunately, when I was working on my first 4 step, I had a visit from a friend who became a Buddhist monk, and he suggested to me that every morning I take a uh, a uh, timer into the kitchen, I mean, to the bathroom or the or the bedroom in front of a mirror and look myself in the eye and say, James Earl Barrett, who are you, James Earl Barrett, who are you, and that was basically what he said. You know, your fourth step is about to find who you are. What is your will in your life, as he su- is suggested in the book? And, um, you know, even at this point in sobriety, I still do that. And I'm finding that I'm much more the kind of person that I'm happy with, that I am at peace with, that I can love and accept unconditionally than I could 40 years ago. And I've, I just, one of the pieces about relationships in the 12 and 12, I think is, is so key to what I'm talking about. He wrote on page 80, since defective relations with other human beings have al- almost always been the immediate cause of our woes, including our alcoholism, no field of investigation could yield more satisfying and valuable rewards than this one. Calm, thoughtful reflection upon personal relations can deepen our insight we can go far beyond those things which were superficially wrong with us to see those flaws which were basic flaws which sometimes were responsible for the whole pattern of our lives thoroughness thoroughness we have found will pay pay handsomely and i take that i take that seriously and um I also know that in learning what I want to see in myself I use that same uh, those same criteria in judging the people that I let really close to me because if there's anything that AA has given me permission to do is to say no to things that are harmful and uh, and uh I haven't been in a toxic relationship for decades now, and because I know how to get out of it and say that's inappropriate, but it it, it is a living thing. And I, my professor and actually advisor when I was back in in school getting an advanced degree said, "Process is our most important product," and so I look at the twelve step process basically as Bill outlined I've been to sixty through eighty eight as the as the way to live you know he said calls some principles for living and i guess i do have a the spiritual i'm so glad that they told me when i came into a don't read that book without a dictionary i'm fortunate to have my father's 1939 dictionary and the first definition of spiritual is non-material so that applies to my attitudes emotions ideas opinions understandings yearnings well, yeah, and then my behaviors get added to that, and so that's a part of my third step practice every day is to be be relieved from the bondage of those things that just fuck everything up. You know, I don't need those things. And guess what? AA has taught me that I have a choice. Like I had a choice the day after my last drunk to not drink that day, and the next day, and the next day. So today is uh day fifteen thousand five hundred and fifty-four, one day at a time and that's all i have to be concerned about i don't have to dwell on the past i don't have to live in the past i need and i don't have to be projecting into the future all the time i need to be here now and that's of course the name of the book but uh, thank you so much for your sharing for your book what you're doing for all of us Hi, uh, thank,
5: so thank you for doing this. <clears throat> I really appreciate it, um, Jeff. Your book has really changed my life. Actually, uh, I know, and I say you probably hear that quite a bit, and it's, um, but it's just true. Um, and I related a lot to with the things that you say, and I think I have a lot in common with the way that you are viewing recovery. Um, I've been working with others using your book weekly. We we're reading it together to study codependency and applying your your principles to codependency and someone it's a it's a unfortunate naming for people with codependency and there there really aren't a lot of secular you know a lot of mentions in this meeting about secular aa as far as i can tell there's no such thing as secular coda and so i read your book and i read it as uh an epiphany it was really enlightening to me i'd been really struggling for years to try to get through coda with God and higher power and just people telling me to worship doorknobs and I could not deal with it I couldn't take it anymore and so when I read your I I started looking for secular coda couldn't find any I said okay well these AA people they're doing something and so I found it and then I read your book and it was just like a lightning bolt in my mind that was a chain reaction of lightning bolts that now has gotten me to do all sorts of stuff so now I have Last week I had a dozen people showing up to talk about codependency and relating to your book and how we can apply it. And so one of the things that I have found in trying to work this program with other people that I would I have a couple questions about that you're just perspective on it because I have you here. Um, one is that with your program, it's now incumbent upon the individual to take responsibility for doing some things that aren't necessary in traditional program. So as incumbent on the individual, when there's no higher power, no God to give away control to, you have to assert what that is and do it actively. It's a different process. And I would love to hear what you think about the nature of control and giving up control as an atheist. Um, And then the second thing is, you know, by writing your book, it's an implicit critique of, of AA and traditional AA and even CODA and um, just by its existence. It's a critique, you know, that it says that like what exists is not fully sufficient. And I have found that to be true. And when I first started making rumblings of codependency and codependency of atheism (laughs) and codependency groups and questioning the, the need for higher power and whether or not it's necessary as a precondition for recovery, and I got a lot of tradition quoting at me and all kinds of pushback that I really just didn't even care to fight. I don't even care. But a lot of things have come up. I said this, you know, this is maybe life or death. So it's really more than just something to just be flippant about. It's really actually urgently important because there are people being left out of traditional AA, CODA, whatever grouping because they tell you you have to have a higher power and someone says, well, that's not for me. And so then they walk off and they don't get help. And so, to me, your book, work that I'm doing, work that other people are doing to make foundations for secular um, recovery is really, really important in life or death. So, I would love to know your opinions about what, how should we approach revisions to AA, Coda, each of their books? Looking forward, what is your perspective? I, you know, I don't necessarily see any need to be so hellbent on preserving tradition when we need to and just evidence the way the world is like inclusion needs to happen so how do we make these groups more inclusive to help more people and just thank you so much for what you've been doing thanks so much Matt Those are good
1: questions there's a lot um, so I'll try, I'll try to answer them all and please if, if I miss anything please let me know um, so one of the things that I want to address is you know, talking about this book as a critique of AA, uh, just just by virtue of existing, and I and I I agree with that to an extent. What I try to make very clear, though, in the book, is that this is my approach that worked. This is an approach that worked for me, and. It can be. It, this is just a path available. I'm not looking to capture people who are coming into AA and say, "Hey, hey, hey, this is the wrong way to do it. Go over here." I'm looking to catch the people that are leaving AA because they don't like that approach and are and are turned off by this the um, the talk of God and higher power and go, "Hey, don't give up. Here's another. Here's what worked for me. I can. I still found a way that worked for me to do this without all of that." Give it a try if you want. So that's really, I really try and emphasize that that is the attitude with which I wrote this book. So having said that also, I don't, I don't think changing AA or changing any of the 12 step programs is a realistic or achievable goal, at least not, not in the way that I'm, I'm hearing you describe it where like, can we actually make changes to the fundamental program to, to be more accepting of people. I think if anything, it's a, it's about sort of creating this offshoot that is more friendly to secular approaches or just the this, this secular version of it. And hopefully over time, that becomes more and more popular and more and more the norm. I, I feel like there will always be sort of a, the traditional you know, very God based approach to AA. And I think some people will possibly always need that. And I don't want to I don't think it's my place to say we need to get rid of it. Um, But I think there just needs to be a path for people for whom that approach doesn't work. And so if anything, I would think, you know, rather than changing AA, let's let's maybe make it more inclusive or make a another, you know, secular AA and just Attraction rather than promotion when it comes to that as well, you know, just, just make it a place that's accepting and, and, uh, practical and down to earth and effective and supportive, and hopefully it will grow. Um, was one other thing you said, you're talking about, uh, I think that's all
5: spot on. That's exactly, you know, I, I've been going down this road and I realize really like struggling, fighting from the inside. And I was just like, you guys, like, can't you like share with me? And, you know, and then I finally was like, "Ah." because of your book, I realized I had choice and freedom and I could start my own thing. And at first it was really hard. And, but now I'm starting to acquire people. Like, just like you said, it's happening. And, um, I it's, I'm just so grateful for that
1: thank you and and one of the other things that you mentioned that I do want to just briefly touch on was you're talking about how you know this now falls the 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 onus then respond then falls on the individual now as opposed to a higher power and the thing is i i think that was kind of always the case to some extent i mean in, in traditional aa they're not generally saying you know just You know go along for the ride god's in total control now and you don't have to do anything um i just think with with my approach i focus on the our need to take action and let go of the rest rather than giving it to something so so the things that you those are still things we need to let go there are still things we need to let go of right so so to say like i'm not saying that we can control everything and we have to do it all ourselves i'm saying that you know there are actions we need to take but there are still there's still things we need to rely on outside of ourselves but instead of instead of god or something supernatural it's you know people relationships values principles um you know, and when we're turning something over, rather than this idea that I'm turning it over to some entity that's going to do something with it, I'm just letting it go. And then by me not holding on to it, it will automatically go to whatever is out there. <laughs> if there's anything just, you know, cause and effect, but it's not mine anymore. It's not something I'm trying to micromanage and control. So I hope that, I hope that makes sense.
5: Yeah, no, it's, it's perfect. And I think we need to develop this language, this new way, you know, we have to talk about it and develop a new framework because people are like, well, you take away the higher power. What do I have? So thank you.